Okay, thanks. It's great to be here again, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, it works. We're here to talk digital sucks. I get to have the first say. How cool is that? Um, as you've just heard, my name's David. I'm from a place called Trend Watching. Our obsession is with consumer trends. So usually when I speak to an audience like you guys, and some of you have seen it before, uh, it's just to say, here are some trends. Here are five trends. Here are 10 trends. I want to do something very different this morning around this theme, digital sucks. Uh, I'll slip some trends in through the back door, obviously. But we are here to talk about you know, the why, the what, the how of this theme, digital sucks. And I have to say, you know, when, I, when they told me the theme, I started thinking about it. My first thought was, you know, what, digital sucks? Really? I mean, does digital really suck? I don't know if they were just thinking about Uber. I know we've seen some problems with Uber recently. You know, all the stuff about the culture of sexism, the bullying, the ongoing trouble with the driver welfare. There was this time Travis shouted at his own Uber driver. Yeah, that was kind of bad. But, you know, that's just Travis, and here's who he is, and he's gone now. He's been fired, so that's fine. And besides, look, we still have Facebook, right? Facebook is awesome. I mean, you know, I know they've had a little problem with fake news recently, um, but what's a little fake news? You know, what's a little fake news, really? Fake news isn't actually going to make anything bad happen in the real world, right? I mean, we don't really have to worry about any fake news. So, seriously, I think we can just forget that. Um, we still have Airbnb. Airbnb is great. I love the sharing economy, even though it's kind of causing a bit of a problem with uh, the price of houses in every major city around the world. And besides, look, we have Twitter. Twitter is awesome. Right? I think we can all agree that Twitter is awesome. What I love most about Twitter is that the information is always really accurate. Okay? <laughs> And what I really love most about Twitter, though, is that the standard of debate is just so high. It's kind of like if aliens just beamed down from Earth and the first thing they saw was Twitter, I'd just be so proud of us as human beings, you know what I mean? Just like so proud of us as a human race. And then looking to the future, obviously we have robots. Robots are going to be awesome. Robots are going to help us do all kinds of amazing things, and we will not have any problems with robots, okay? And then even further out, we're going to have AI. AI is going to be amazing. AI is literally going to build a better future for us. We won't even actually have to do anything. We can just sit back and let AI do all the work. We will be totally fine, right? Everything is fine, isn't it? Yes? <laughs> Maybe not, okay? Maybe we do have to think again. Digital has been an amazing revolution. Uh, we're right to be excited about it. But as the people who love that revolution most, and you guys, the innovators who are continuing to help build that revolution, as 2017 draws to a close, you know, as we've already heard, right, we do have to stop and just admit there are some problems. Not everything is going the way we want it to go. Uh, and we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to this amazing revolution to look at that honestly and think about you know, what it really means and how we can make some changes. We know that these huge tech platforms are amassing vast, unaccountable power over our lives. Okay? We know that Google knows more about us than our own governments. It knows more about us than, than we know. What does that mean for our privacy? What does that mean for our democracies? Uh, you know, we know that Amazon is becoming anti-competitive. We know there are massive problems with Twitter. We can see these problems. What can we do about them? And when I was thinking first about all this stuff, I 
came across a quote from this guy. You know him well, of course, Ev Williams, co-founder of Twitter, co-founder of Medium. Uh, he's had a lot on his mind recently, Ev Williams. Um, I mean, if you rewind a few years, you remember Twitter was heralded as the platform that helped bring about the Arab Spring, that was going to help bring democracy to the Middle East. First of all, that did not go so well. Then, of course, much more recently, most people agree that Twitter you know, gave a helping hand to Donald Trump on his road to the White House. Now, when he was thinking particularly about that last event, about Donald Trump, Ev Williams said something that I think is extraordinary. It hasn't been commented on that much, okay? He said this, and I'd just love you to read that and just absorb it. We'll come back to it later, because I think it's an absolutely amazing thing for Ev Williams or someone like him to say. Um, and we will return to that quote. Okay, so we're here for the next two days to think about digital subs. It's going to be amazing. I know I'm going to learn so much. I'm really here to, to listen rather than talk. But while I am here on stage, I just want to throw a few thoughts into the well, just my two cents that I hope will set what you're going to hear in context. And most of all, just provoke some thinking of your own. I just love to get you guys to think, okay, because that's how we're all going to solve this. And my thought starts here with this word, optimism, okay? Optimism is what I want to talk about today. Um, why is that? It's because I think that the idea of optimism is deeply woven through tech culture, digital culture, and Silicon Valley culture. And I think that if we can understand that relationship and understand our model of optimism, as we have it today, we can start to unravel some of the problems we face and look to find new solutions. So there's really two halves to this talk. I want to look at this idea of optimism. I want to explore it and the relationship it has to digital culture. And then the second half of the talk, I want to get a bit more practical and look at things you guys can do as innovators to make positive change. First of all, why am I so obsessed with this idea of optimism? Well, I think you, you don't have to look very far at all to see how deeply woven through digital culture this idea of optimism is. You know, Mark Zuckerberg calls himself an optimist. He says, I'm an optimist. I think we build things and the world gets better. Sergey Brin relentlessly calls himself an optimist. Every person who ever gives a TED talk says, I am an optimist. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love TED. TED is an amazing repository of human knowledge and value. But seriously, go, go and listen to those talks. Pretty much everyone who gives a TED talk at some point says, I am an optimist. It's like this official thing you have to say if you give a TED talk, okay? And I just want to look at why that is. It starts to feel that this idea of optimism is deeply woven through Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is a town built on an idea, and that idea is that things tend to get better over time. Okay? More specifically, that we can make things, we human beings can make things get better over time. And most specifically, that we can build new technologies that make things better over time. Okay? Now, that is a pretty reasonable idea. It's a pretty reasonable thing to think. And many of the technologies that we've built in the last 30, 30 years and beyond, obviously, have deeply made things better but there's nothing inevitable about the idea that optimism had to be the guiding philosophy of Silicon Valley, okay? 
You know, it could have been like utilitarianism. You could have had people standing on a TED stage saying, I am a utilitarian, I believe in creating the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, and that's what I'm going to do. Or I am a classical liberal, I believe in creating the optimum conditions for human freedom, and that's what I'm going to do with my technology. Okay, we do not have that. We have people relentlessly saying, I am an optimist, and I really want to understand why that is. I think if we can understand why that is, we start to understand why we have these problems, why we're here today saying digital sucks, and we can start to see a way forward. Okay, to explore this relationship, I want to do a bit of time travel. I want to take us way back to the, to the early origins of web and digital culture. Okay, so a little bit of time travel, or mental time travel, at least. And it starts with these guys. <laughs> I love this slide. So the, the, the hippie origins of web culture are well-documented, okay? Early web and digital, early tech culture, as we are talking about it today, was fermented primarily in California um, by a generation who looked at the world and wanted to be in the world in a new way, okay? These guys were, like, getting, getting high, I was going to say, I mean, literally getting high often, right? But they were high on a dream as well of individual expression, empowerment, um, freedom, creativity, and they were powered by an amazing thought. They were powered by the thought that they could come together as a generation to overturn what had been and make the world a better place. Okay? They were optimists in that sense, and that was an amazing thing to be at that time uh, for reasons we'll come back and just touch on in a minute. Um, so that kind of cultural environment um, brought about, inspired, and helped fuel intellectuals and thinkers like this, okay? This is Marshall McLuhan. You know him through his most famous sentence, the medium is the message, okay? So he was a media theorist and a philosopher who believed that the old order, the powers that be, like old government, big money, big business, were about to be overturned by a technological revolution that would hand huge power to individuals, okay? So he was writing this in the 1960s. He believed that connective technologies were about to allow millions of people for the first time ever to come together, share ideas, say whatever it was they wanted to say, and that that would be a revolution, okay? That would change everything. At the time, people thought he was kind of crazy. Now it looks, okay, you have to say, it looks like a very good prediction. It looks like a very accurate prediction. Those kind of ideas fueled things like this, the whole Earth catalogue. This is the early magazine of hippie culture and technology published in California in the 60s that really influenced web and digital culture as it was fermenting, as it was beginning. It influenced people like this. This is Kevin Kelly, one of the founders of Wired magazine, the tech culture bible. Influenced people like this, who obviously need no introduction, okay? And here's the thing. You can draw a direct line between those days, those early days of hippie, web culture, technology culture optimism, and today, and Google's mission, or Google's core value, I guess, uh, of don't be evil, or Facebook's mission to make the world more open and connected. Okay? We can draw a direct line between that early culture in the 1960s and the supposed core values of the big tech companies that we see today. Okay? A, a direct line between then and now. 
And that's really important. But here's the thing. Somewhere along the way, that culture of early optimism that fueled that generation in the 1960s was co-opted by massive corporations, okay, by the big tech platforms, the big tech companies, and they changed it. They changed it in some really important ways. They changed it into what it's easy to call, what I tend to call, big tech optimism. Okay? And big tech optimism is a set of ideas, is basically a story about who we are as human beings and how human progress happens that you are all, we are all intuitively familiar with because it's an idea that we're sold all the time by the big tech companies. But just as a reminder, it goes something like this, okay? This is the big tech version of optimism. Basically, it starts with saying, all human beings are in essentially good people, okay? We are good, you are good, we're all good together, okay? Human beings are good. And that means you don't really need all the old things like politics, and society and traditional social conventions, okay? Those things are holding you back. Those are things that are in your way, okay? And just by the way, it's very interesting that if you look at the political tendencies of the Silicon Valley leaders today, not even just the leaders, but, you know, the managers, the people running Silicon Valley, they're a very interesting mix of left and right, okay? They're, they're, they're traditional left on social issues, they're very tolerant, they're very liberal, all the stuff you'd expect. They're more traditionally right when it comes to government, okay? They're very suspicious of government intervention of any kind, and they really favour very small, very minimal government. And that's all part of this idea that it's human beings who are essentially good, okay? And if we just got all that stuff out the way from the past, it's human beings that can come together to build a better world. You don't need all that stuff. Basically, all you need is each other, connected by us, and you can come together to do amazing things and build a better world. Now, there's a clue there in one of the things I just said, which is note the connected by us part, okay? <laughs> because that is crucial. That is crucial to really what they are selling you, um, because I would argue that in the hands of the big tech companies, this version of optimism has kind of solidified into an ideology. Okay, it's become an ideology that is presented to us as just a series of, of universal human truths but is actually an ideology that helps the big tech platforms keep doing what they're doing and in the end just keep making money, okay? Just, that's, you know, just keep doing what they're doing with us. Um, and it just feels like we are stuck with that model, um, with that philosophy of human progress and of tech progress, okay? We know that we have huge problems. That's why we're all here today. <laughs> we know that... You know, Google, as I said, is amassing vast amounts of data about us, and we don't really understand what that means for our privacy. We know that Amazon is getting so large now that perhaps it's becoming anti-competitive, okay? It's crushing the competitive spirit that helped it flourish in the first place. We know that Twitter, yes, handed us all as individuals amazing power to express ourselves, but what it did most of all is empower people in our society who are already very powerful, okay? Amplify the voice of people who already had a very loud voice, people like Donald Trump, okay? We know these things, but it just feels like we're kind of stuck where we are. How do we move out of it? So what I would like to 
say is, propose is, part of that problem is how do we recapture this, okay? How do we recapture that early spirit of optimism that fueled this generation who fermented web culture? And there's a couple of things to say there. The first is, yes, this was a generation high on the idea that they could come together to build a better world, but they also shared a set of common values about what that better world looked like, okay? Values around, you know, tolerance, liberalism, democracy, kindness even, they shared a common set of values that let them agree on what a better world looks like. Big tech optimism just kind of strips those values out of the equation, okay? It says we're going to connect hundreds of millions of people around the world. Uh, that will make a better world. But it tells us nothing. It tells those hundreds of millions of users nothing about what a better world looks like. Okay, and that turns out to be a problem. It tells them nothing, basically, about what to do. Um, and people do all kinds of things, and that becomes a problem. Some of them do amazing, wonderful, beautiful things. Some of them do terrible things, and we're kind of stuck with that. That's an issue about the end users of technology. But I'm here to talk to you as innovators, so I want to look at the other half of the problem, the other half of the equation, um, which is this. Like, Yes, in the 1960s, the lives, or many of them, for many of them, their lives looked like this. This early generation of web pioneers, this is what their lives looked like. We tend to forget about this generation that their childhoods looked very different. Their childhoods looked more like this, okay? They were marked by one of the most destructive, like, violent events in human history. Now, it didn't happen on the doorstep in California, obviously, but it marked the mindset and the attitude of an entire generation of Western children who were born in the 1940s and grew up in the 1960s. I mean, how could it not? Look what they had seen happen to, you know, pretty much the entire world. It had descended into total madness. So, yes, this was a generation fueled by this idea that they could come together to build a better world. But they held that idea against a very different backdrop. And I think that's so important. They held it against a backdrop that reminded them of human beings' capacity for total destruction, violence, and chaos, okay? Um, yes, they wanted to come together to build a better world, but because they knew they had to, because they knew what the alternative looks like. In other words, I think they had a more nuanced vision of optimism than the vision of optimism sold to us by the big tech companies today. Which, let's face it, for the 20 to 30-year-olds, like in Silicon Valley now, building the future is a very easy vision of optimism to buy because we've had it so good for so long. Okay? It's easy for us to forget the lesson of history that gave these guys a more nuanced vision of optimism. And that's a vision of optimism that boils down in the end to just saying things can get worse as well as better. Okay? Most specifically, human beings can make things worse as well as better. Yes, come together to build a better world and be passionate about that, but also know that human beings can make the world worse. Okay? Now, that sounds like a very small shift in attitude. Actually, what I want to tell you, or what I want to argue, is that it's everything, okay? It is huge. 
Because if you come to the world with that idea, it becomes a very different way of looking at human affairs and human progress and, and technological progress. It becomes a very different way of looking at innovation. And really what it becomes is a new spirit of innovation. Okay? And I think that that spirit is a very productive, very useful thing for us to try to recapture when we look at some of the problems we have today. Okay? And that brings me back to this quote that I promised I'd show you again. F. Williams, co-founder of Twitter, co-founder of Medium. Because if you read this quote again, it just feels to me that this is the sound of F. Williams embracing what I call double-sided optimism. This vision of optimism that acknowledges, yes, we can make the world better, we can also make the world worse. And I don't want to put, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, okay, this is just my interpretation of what he's saying, obviously. But I think this is an absolutely astonishing thing for a tech titan like Ev Williams to say. For someone who founded perhaps, well, one of the most culturally significant platforms of our age, to say, I thought my technology was, would automatically make the world better, but it turns out it doesn't work like that, I think is absolutely huge. I mean, try getting Mark Zuckerberg to admit that his mission to make the world more open and connected does not always make the world a better place. Try getting Sergey Brin to admit that Google doesn't always inevitably make the world a better place. I mean, even standing on the stage at a tech conference saying that feels kind of heretical, right? It feels like you really shouldn't say it. Are we allowed to say that sometimes Google makes the world worse, that more information isn't always automatically better? Because some people do terrible things with that information. Some people do amazing things with it. Some people do terrible things with it. And it would have been better sometimes, in some instances, if Google had not existed. Like, are we allowed to say that? Are we allowed to say that the sharing economy is not really about sharing? It's just kind of supercharging capitalism and handing more power to asset owners who, you know, already have great economic power, and now they can leverage their assets just that bit further. Are we allowed to say these things in technology environments? I think we need to be allowed to say them and think about them if we're going to make progress. So what I want to do for the second half of the talk is kind of stop with the theory and think about you guys as innovators. Okay, I've established this idea of double-sided optimism, this belief that, yes, we need to come together to make the world a better place, but we need to be mindful of how hard that is. We need to think hard about whether our actions are making the world better or are they making the world worse, okay? And what I want to look at is a few things that you guys can do as innovators, because that's what I'm really interested in, is how you can go away and innovate to make things better. So some things you can do as innovators to change all this. I really love the 1% the model of technological progress put forward by this guy. You remember him from a previous slide? He was a bit younger. But this is Kevin Kelly, the co-founder of Wired magazine. He says, I think technology makes the world both worse and better. But over time, it tends to make it 1% more better than it does worse. Okay? There's a kind of 1% surplus when it comes to technological advance. I think that's a great model to think about in the context of double-sided optimism, and I just want to look at four things, okay, four big things you guys can do as innovators to just embrace that, okay, 
and innovate to make the world a better place with a new spirit of innovation. So it starts with this one. First big thing you can do inside your organization, inside your team, inside your startup, like whatever it is, okay, is be what I call a glass box. In other words, be totally transparent. And I think the reason transparency is so powerful and so fundamental here is because transparency forces you to behave in certain ways. It forces you to behave in certain ways that are good, uh, that will make you make better things. Okay, and I just want to look at the reasons for that very quickly. The first reason is transparency will force you to be more diverse. Okay, when, when sunlight pours in and you have the scrutiny of the outside world, asking you, why are you not diverse? Like, and I'm talking about diversity of gender, of background, of ethnicity, and of age, okay, age. We know that technology is terrible for diversity of age. When you have people scrutinizing you and asking you, why are you not diverse, you will tend to build more diverse teams. And I think if you're more diverse as an organization, that will give you naturally a more nuanced vision of human progress, and of what you're building, and you'll be better able to see the unintended consequences of what you're putting out into the world, okay? Especially with age, you know, it turns out, it's a funny thing, it turns out that experienced people are better at seeing the unintended consequences of what you put out into the world, okay? So diversity is a really valuable thing. The second thing that transparency will make you do is listen, listen to your own people. It's no good being diverse and having all these different voices if you're not listening to them. Like, we know the culture of sexism and bullying at Uber was eventually exposed when this employee, this employee, Susan Fowler, wrote a blog post about it that went viral, okay? And then suddenly everyone was looking at Uber's terrible culture of sexism. So what I'm saying is do not be like that. Don't let things leak out, okay? And then everyone starts looking at you. Be totally transparent from the get-go. Be transparent from the start. Let your people tell the world about what they're doing and how they're feeling, and, and that will force you to listen to them, to listen to their voices, and if things are going wrong, to, connect, to, to correct things early, okay? And really, the way to do this, the way to embrace transparency is just to have in your head this idea, every department is the marketing department, or if, you're a tiny startup of like four people. Every person is a marketing person. Tell everyone that it is part of their job to tell the outside world stories about what they're building, the problems they're facing, like how they feel about it. Of course, there will be commercial secrets that you cannot share. Like, I understand that. But share as much as you possibly can, because transparency will force you to be a better organization. And that will mean, in the end, you make better things that are more likely to make the world a better place. The second big thing you can do, and this is for those of you out there, probably lots of you who are thinking, well, look, you know, I'm in a startup or I'm in this department of an organization. Our product is our product. Our service, if it's a service, is our service. Like, it does what it does, you know what I mean? It is what it is. We can't change it, so, you know, that's it. Um, how can you leverage what you do? How can you tweak or change what you do okay, to draw value out of it in a different way, to let it do something new for the people 
not just for the people you're trying to serve right now, but for other people who maybe would have had no contact with you otherwise. Okay, I just want to tell you a quick story about someone who did do that. This is the Do Not Pay chatbot. Lots of you will have seen it. Okay, it's made by a Stanford undergraduate called Joshua Browder. This is a chatbot that you interact with using very natural language. What it first did was it was a chatbot lawyer to help people in London challenge their parking tickets. Okay, so kind of first world problems, not a massive deal. But if you're in London and you've got a parking ticket, you could come to this chatbot and chat to it, tell it the details, tell it you know, where the ticket was, all of this. It would chat back to you. And if it was possible, it would file to the local council to get that parking ticket overturned. And this chatbot lawyer actually overturned more than 160,000 parking tickets. Okay, so no lawyer involved, no human lawyer involved, just this chatbot overturned all those parking tickets. But then Joshua Browder did something really interesting. He took what he had built and he leveraged it, he tweaked it, he changed it to perform something of a much higher, I'm sure you will agree, a much higher human value because he turned it into a chatbot to fight wrongful eviction and homelessness in London. Okay, so if you were about to be evicted by your landlord, you could come to this chatbot and tell it the details of your case, explain to it what was going on, and if possible, it would file to the local council to have that eviction overturned, to have it stopped, or to find you alternative accommodation. Okay, so you go from something that's about parking tickets to something that's about homelessness. And I would just love that to be a little story that gets you guys thinking, how can we change what we do? to deliver new kinds of human value. Right now, again, many of you will see, he's taking aim with his chatbot lawyer at Equifax, okay? So he continues to, he continues to tweak it. So Equifax, the massive credit data company in the USA, has compromised the data of like 140 million <laughs> Americans. Um, now his chatbot is going to allow people to file a case against Equifax. Okay, to get justice against this massive corporation, if possible. So how can you leverage what you do, tweak what you do, to get new kinds of human value out of it? Okay, third one, and this is a huge one. This is a really big one. Disrupt the right things, okay? And what I mean by that is this, how can we turn the power of technology, the amazing power you have as innovators, onto more meaningful human problems. Like, we all know that it's kind of sad that some of the best minds of this generation are sitting in Silicon Valley figuring out how to overlay, like, pictures of, our, pictures of a dog on our face, like, in augmented reality, or make, like, a $7,000, like, really shiny, juicing machine so we don't have to squeeze our own oranges, okay? We all know already that that is sad. How can we address more meaningful human problems? How can we disrupt the right things? A little story to start with to persuade you that now more than ever, that is a worthwhile thing to do. You've seen this over the past couple of weeks, I'm sure. Bodega, here is an example of a startup that did not disrupt the right thing, okay? They did not think through what they want to disrupt. Bodega make these things. They're smartphone-operated, like, storefronts, they call them. Basically, smartphone-operated vending machines um, that they want to put in offices all over America. Now, a real bodega, okay, is a Hispanic-owned corner shop in New York City. 
And by calling themselves Bodega, what they basically said is that community corner store where you come in and you chat with the owner and you know the locals and it feels good and you feel kind of grounded in your community, that whole thing, we want to disrupt that. Like, we want to smash that, <laughs> okay? And there was a huge, as you know, outpouring of criticism because people were saying, we don't want that disrupted, okay? So it's a great example of a startup that didn't think through what they want to disrupt, okay? They did not think through the unintended consequences of their innovation and whether anyone would even want that disrupted because it's like as though Amazon called itself, like, we want to smash your local bookstore. You know what I mean? It's just a crazy thing to call your startup, and what it indicates is they did not think through what they were trying to disrupt. But by the way, I do think that the welter of criticism they faced would not have happened five years ago, okay? I think five years ago, people would have just been impressed with the technology and been like, yeah, this is cool. But now we've seen Uber, and we've seen all the problems they have with driver welfare, okay, and treating their workers properly. We've had the whole Juicero thing and, like, useless technology that no one really wants. And that has really primed people to expect innovators, to expect you guys to think through more carefully what it is you are trying to disrupt and what it is your technology is going to do and what it might do that you don't intend it to do. Just to round off this story, this is Bazaar, this is another US startup. They are levering technology to help real bodegas, to help real corner stores. They're building a platform that's going to help people who own bodegas, like, buy stock more cheaply, manage their inventory, all of that stuff. So, you know, a great example of if you want to do something, you know, think about what you're disrupting and make it helpful. How can you guys do the same thing? So I want to show you some examples, a cluster of AI-fueled examples, actually, about disrupting the right thing, addressing real human problems. This is Alcoholics Anonymous in Brazil. They very, very recently built an AI-fueled chatbot that gives support to people who are addicted to alcohol, okay, to alcoholics. And what they did is they, they took a huge archive of counseling sessions and conversations with alcoholics that they have, that they've built up through their history. They put it into, they built this chatbot using that archive and fueled by AI. And now as an alcoholic, you can come to this chatbot for support you know, 24-7. When they put it up live on the Facebook page, had like 75,000 hits in the first 12 hours. Like, people are using it. So a great example of just using technology to address a human problem that is a bit more meaningful, okay? Here's another example. How about disrupting workplace bias and prejudice? Okay, this is a platform called Juneco. This is a piece of AI-fueled software that you plug into the software that you use to manage your staff. So you plug it into software like Salesforce or Workday. It crunches the data that you have about your staff, okay? But what it's doing, crucially, is it's using AI to try to identify unseen manager bias. So this software, Juneco, will start to say things to you like, hey, did you know that, you know, in this team, you tend to promote men faster than women? Or did you know that you tend to ignore that team altogether and just kind of focus on that team? Managers are biased, like human beings. We as human beings are biased. We can build AIs that help us identify our own biases, okay? In the workplace, out of the workplace, in all kinds of contexts. A great idea if you are looking to innovate around a genuinely meaningful human problem. 
Fake news, how about disrupting fake news? This is Fact Marta, a UK startup. They're building a kind of Wikipedia or a kind of Quora for fake news. Again, I promise you they're all fueled by AI. It's fueled by AI, but it's going to be a wiki where people can come together and tag news for its accuracy. AI will help people sort stuff and rise the right stuff to the surface. So again, just addressing a really profound human problem. And this one is not AI, but I just had to throw it in because I love it. Local roots, okay? They're a startup in Los Angeles. They build hydroponic farms. They take 40-foot shipping containers, and they turn those containers into the equivalent of five acres of farmland, okay? The equivalent of five acres in 40 feet like containers, and they grow the food in there using 97% less water than is traditionally needed, okay? So an amazing startup in Los Angeles disrupting, like, hunger, basically, and the problems we're going to have with water and climate change that are coming down the pipeline. Their mission is to feed a billion people in the next 10 years, so pretty ambitious. Even more ambitious, they say they want to be the first company to grow food on Mars. Um, yeah, yeah, and, they're, and you know, you think they're mad, but they are actually partnering with SpaceX, like SpaceX has come and studied how they do this stuff, so that when Elon gets that colony on Mars, these will be the guys growing the food in 40-foot shipping containers, okay? Don't, I'm not, that is not investment advice, but that's what they say. <laughs> Don't invest because I've told you that, okay? But how can you guys address something more meaningful? Like if you're inside an organization or you're inside a startup and you're just doing what you're doing and you can't change it, maybe you can leverage what you do, like Joshua Browder did with Do Not Pay. If you're thinking about your next idea, okay, if you're at that really exciting moment where you're thinking, what is next for me? And like, it's just a blank page right now. How about taking on a really meaningful human problem? Okay, because I think that is the direction that consumer demand is going in, consumer mindset is going in. You don't want to be those bodega guys who did not think, I'm sure they're great guys, I don't want to be down on them, but they didn't think about what they were trying to disrupt. Okay. That final example brings me to my fourth thing, the, the biggest thing. I mean, the biggest thing in size, not in importance. Ask big questions, okay? Those guys are trying to grow food on Mars. How can you be super ambitious? How can you ask massive questions? A really quick story about people who are doing just that. This is a UK startup called Improbable. Okay, they are building a virtual reality platform that lets people make totally immersive, massive virtual worlds that are also totally social. So you can come in like thousands or millions of people can come in and interact with one another just like we do in the real world. A company called Clang Games is making this using Improbable's platform. This is Seed. This is supposed to be a totally immersive virtual society where thousands or millions of people eventually come in and interact with one another. But Seed is doing something really interesting because it's getting this guy, okay, this is Professor Lawrence Lessig of Harvard University, Professor of Law and Politics. They're getting this guy to design the initial political rules and institutions of this society, of this world. So he's going to set the initial political conditions of this world, and then they hope like thousands or millions of people are going to come in, and we'll just watch how that plays out. 
So for the first time ever, we're going to get to see the evolution of a political society like in front of our eyes, in real time. We can even do experiments with it. We can change things and see how that affects stuff. And of course, the idea is ultimately, what insights will that generate about the nature of our own democracies, right? the nature of our own politics that we can take back to the real world? Okay, and I'm showing you this example because I think we're going to see more of this. I promised a bit of kind of trend thinking. I think we will see more and more virtual worlds and immersive worlds and video games, immersive video games, that are intended to allow us to generate insight that we can then pull out and apply to our real-world problems. Okay, and this one is politics, but I just wanted to show you that story too to inspire you to think big, like how can you think about climate change? How can you think about healthcare? How can you think about immigration, like the millions of people pouring into Europe who need help? Massive problems to address. Again, if you're at that blank page moment, okay, think, think big. You know, maybe think about partnerships. Look at what Local Roots did with SpaceX. You know, they got the attention of someone massive to partner with them on a huge vision. Okay, so those four things for you, I think, are really useful. Of course, they're not the answer, okay? They are not the answer to all the tech problems we face, but they are good starting points, okay? Because the only way we find the answer is going to be in practice, is going to be going out and innovating. But if you take those as guidelines, I think it's really valuable. Now, I need to be quick in the wrap-up here. One of the things you might be thinking to yourself is, look, we're too small to make a difference, okay? We're just a few people, we're just a startup, like, we're just 50 people, like, we cannot make a difference on that scale. You are wrong for a reason I'll put to you very quickly, okay? And that is expectation transfer. Small innovations create new expectations, and those expectations spread, okay? They, they cause human beings to expect new things, and those expectations spread, and they force the big players in the end to change, okay? And that happens independent of whether your innovation, whether your startup is a unicorn or not, okay? It still happens. Like, very, very quickly, this is the Fairphone, a totally ethical smartphone. Okay, totally sustainable smartphone. This is the black phone, a totally encrypted, totally private smartphone. Now, did either of the, these smartphones knock the iPhone off its perch? Like, the answer is no. Like, and sad, maybe sadly, they never will. Like, that is not going to happen. But what have we seen the past couple of years? We've seen Apple responding to the new expectations that those phones helped to fuel. Okay? expectations that a smartphone can be more sustainable, expectations that a smartphone can be more encrypted. Tim Cook has put a lot of work into making the iPhone supply chain more sustainable. In iOS 9 and 10, we saw privacy and encryption get beefed up. Okay? This is a massive player responding to the expectations that these small players help to fuel. And that happens all the time. This is Juno. It's an Uber competitor that treats its drivers much more fairly, actually gives its drivers equity. Is Juno ever going to kill Uber? Like, no, like we know not. Like Uber's position is just too strong, too defensible. But an innovation like Juno in New York City helps create the expectation that on-demand taxi services can be ethical. Okay? And remember, you don't have to use it. 
You just have to see it, like you guys are seeing it now, to have your expectations changed. Okay, and what have we seen with Uber? Well, we've seen like a firestorm around its ethics, around the way it treats its drivers. It just added the tipping function. It just fired Travis Kalanick because of all the problems with the culture he's creating. So the big, big player responds to the expectations that the small innovation is helping to create. This is Vager. They make shoes made, I can't get into the heavy details here. They make shoes made out of plastic. Okay, ocean plastic. This is Adidas making shoes out of ocean plastic and now saying that they're going to totally cut non-recycled plastic out of their supply chain. I'm showing you these to tell you you can make a difference with your innovation. Okay? You don't, maybe you will be the next unicorn. Like, who knows, right? Maybe you will be, but you don't have to be to make a difference because you can change the expectations of human beings and cause the big players to change whether you're a unicorn or not. Okay, so that is my clarion call to you. Just embrace double-sided optimism. Come to your innovation with a new mindfulness that yes, we can make the world a better place, but we have to be really careful as human beings, as innovators, to make sure we're not making the world a worse place. We have to think really carefully about that dialectic, about that situation, okay? And just come to your innovation with a new spirit, because innovation is still the answer, okay? Have no doubt about that. We are living through an amazing revolution. We are living through an amazing time, and it has never been a better time to be an innovator. The power really is with you guys as innovators to make the world a better place. The world truly is yours as innovators right now. It's just about how you use it. So that is the message I'd love you to take into the next two days, okay? We're just gonna see so many great innovators, great thinkers talking to all of us about the work they're doing, the way they're thinking about these problems, and I would love you to take that message into the next two days, okay? Yes, your innovation can make a difference. Yes, you can recover. Uh, you can get back to that optimism that inspired, that more nuanced optimism that inspired the early generation of web pioneers, okay? And innovation is still the answer, because it would be the worst thing in the world if, because of these problems we're having now, we stopped believing in that, we stopped believing in innovation. But that is more than enough for me. It's been so fun talking to you. I can't wait for the next two days to roll out, but for now, Goodbye, and thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. David. David Martin. Thank you. May I, may I ask you a quick question? Of course. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, no, let him clap. Uh, <laughs> first of all, you kind of ended, it sounded a little TED talky there. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> got to leave on a high, man. Got to leave on a high. <laughs> leave them wanting more yeah. life and not wanting to kill themselves. That's always good advice. <laughs> um, so you, you talk a lot about disrupting the wrong thing and uh, people misusing digital uh, tools. Yes. And it makes me wonder if, uh, it, it makes me think of what I call the, the, the real genius question, uh, <clears throat> the question that, that movie posited, I'm getting the children of the 80s, should nerds tend to disassociate themselves with the end use of their nerd tools that they make. Yes. Should we put end use and morality and, you know, asking the big questions in part of 
you know, STEM culture, STEM training? Like, is that something we are omitting at our detriment? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I basically think very passionately the answer is yes, right? And that's why I've always been a massive believer in the bringing together of what C.P. Snow, like a British, old British academic dude, called the two cultures. Okay, I think when science and tech culture divorces itself from the humanities um, and doesn't think through the human implications and think like, you know, why are we even doing all this? Like, what does a better world look like? Like, what are these big questions? Very hard to answer. What are some of the answers to those? Then we have problems, okay? And when you have a bunch of 22-year-olds who are like genius coders, but they're not in that mindset, okay, understandably we have these problems, so can we bring them together? And look, that's a massive challenge to do that. I don't know how we do that 100%, but I think we need to start thinking about it. Well, the good news is most 24-year-olds, uh, 22-year-olds with no morality, they're not in tech, they're working for the, the Trump administration. Um, <laughs> yes. you Maybe uh, that will hoover up all the bad. I know, he's got all the, all the, all the clunks there. Uh, you, you, so you talked about all the, the tech optimists, and you, there was a Twitter fellow <coughs> who kind of turned around. Yes. And I think that's amazing. You point. omitted uh, Elon Musk, who's got a bit of a fear right, of, he does. Uh, of, yeah. of AI. Of AI. You had Stephen Hawking. And I wonder, yeah. do you think you perhaps are leading a, a reverse current of optimism? I mean, or at least of bringing in this double-sided optimism. Are we going to be hearing more second-guessing from, I think from if, tech? I think if smarter louder people take the idea up, yeah, because I, I would love us, I would hate us, I mean, to, to lose the optimistic spirit that fueled that early web culture, but I just think we need a more nuanced version of it. And if that can come about, if that can become a big idea, that is amazing, but it would obviously need people to talk about it and, and people to think about it, and that's what, just what I hope all these guys can do, have it in the back of their mind for the next two days. And totally off subject, is there anything that, uh, that you know, anything in particular over the next two days you're looking forward to, looking forward to seeing that folks should kind of think, maybe I should see that too? Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to um, Nandini Stocker's talk, which I think is today or tomorrow, I can't remember. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, today, I it's a packed schedule, but that in particular, and of course, when you're a speaker and you've done today your talk. Today it's 10.55. 10.55, perfect. When you're a speaker and you've done your talk, it's always like time for a gin and tonic now. Um, well, that. I understand there's a gin tasting. At, uh, <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like after one gin, you don't taste too much, yeah. but that's fine. Uh, well, great. Well, if, 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 you've, if you'd like to buy gin and tonics, then perhaps you can have a word with David. One more round of applause for David Martin. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thanks. Thanks, man. Thank you.